1: We are going to have a very interesting episode about physical activity, joint health and osteoarthritis and how is it to do podcast as a researcher. And we have a brilliant guest. Our guest is working as a professor of medicine at University of Sydney and the Royal North Shore Hospital, Sydney, Australia. His main research focus has been clinical and translational research in osteoarthritis. He is also hosting the Joint Action Podcast and is called also as the Joint Doctor. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Professor David Hunter. Welcome, David.
2: Thank you very much, Oli. It's a great pleasure to have me alone. Thank you.
1: Yeah, great to have you. If there's any coach, coach listeners here or... Taking care of coach coaches education, maybe maybe listen some episodes from from David's podcast. And if I go a little bit backwards uh, to the pain pain that comes, and you said that it takes about twenty five years to from the beginning of the flare to to joint replacement. So a lot of people have different kind of pains, but how would you say what kind of pain is? Is the real joint pain? How many days it should go? What are the special characteristics that you kind of can distinguish from the normal pains?
2: Yeah, so it's it's a good and it's a really important question, and I'll do my best to explain it. And I would imagine uh, there'll still be people that have questions afterwards. Um, But let's let's start with distinguishing it from muscle soreness pain that follows an activity that is diffuse. It's not particularly well localized. It's usually temporarily related to some activity that you're otherwise unaccustomed to and will usually subside within 24 to 48 hours of the activity that you've otherwise undertaken. Most people who are developing osteoarthritis-related pain will have focal, joint-line-related symptoms. So it's a sharp pain. It's usually um, associated with the activity. Often, more often than not, they might have some concomitant swelling within the joint. Uh, They may also have a local tenderness along the joint line, but it's quite sharp focal activity related and more often than not will settle down again within a few days after they've done um, the inciting activity or event that predisposed to that joint pain. So if that's hopefully helps to distinguish between the diffuse muscle discomfort as opposed to the joint-related pain, which is more, more than likely the, uh, the osteoarthritis-related pain setting on. Um, and as that becomes more frequent um, and the episodes closer together, um, it would be worthwhile going along and getting some advice and help about what you can best do to preserve uh, your joint health longer term.
1: So basically, on a joint line, and do you feel it usually anterior or posterior, or both, or how how to distinguish
2: it? So, at least for the knee, the most common location for osteoarthritis is in the patellofemoral joint, so the joint between the kneecap and the femur, um, and so that tends to be towards the front of the knee. Uh, the next most common location is medial tibiofemoral, so that's on the inside portion of the knee between the tibia and the femur. Then lateral tibiofemoral, and then. Um, not infrequently, people can also get a feeling of uh, discomfort, fullness, swelling associated with uh, a baker's or ser- a Baker's or a semimembranosus cyst behind the knee uh, within the popliteal fossa. Um, so it can occur wherever in the knee. And then there are bursae or sacs of fluid or inflammation that can occur in other locations around the knee. But the most common locations would be anterior related to patellofemoral joint involvement or medial. Um, in the knee,
1: and and swelling, it's quite easy to detect. How often there is pain without swelling that's related to uh, meniscus? Yeah,
2: yeah. So swelling can be difficult to detect um, when it's um, less pronounced. And so, as a clinician, we often see this and examine for this. Um, the vast majority of people who present with osteoarthritis present without swelling, and they do have pain. But the vast majority present without. Um, uh, an evident effusion on clinical examination. So in general, most people who present with osteoarthritis will present with, without a swollen knee with joint-related symptoms associated with their osteoarthritis.
1: All right. And, and you said that it usually happens with activity. And I think we have many runners as listeners. Would it be pain when you land the step and how how is the intensity of pain on the on the scale pain scale from one to one to ten usually?
2: Um, so in terms of pain severity, Oli, it can vary dramatically. Um, and obviously, if a person has pain that's just coming on with activity, and they persist with activity and they don't slow or modify the activity, that pain severity can go all the way from one through to ten, and that ultimately then forces them to maybe stop the activity. Uh, that they're other they're otherwise doing. What was sorry? What was the first part of that question?
1: Uh, I think I asked. Yeah, is it is it when the leg is landing? So is it kind of with the with the loading?
2: Yeah. So the the, the portion of um, uh, the gait cycle where they're most likely to to experience the symptoms is either in heel strike or mid stance. It's very usually uh, at one of those at one of those instances. Um if a runner is really attuned to their gait cycle and is very sensitive to changes that have occurred they may be sufficiently sensitive to to differentiate between heel strike and mid stance but um, for most people they're not necessarily attuned or or bright enough or se- sorry or sensitive enough to be able to detect which part of the gait cycle that's actually occurring in the other activity which more often than not tends to Increased symptoms is uh, eccentric loading, whether that be through descending hills or descending stairs, is often an, another area where uh, people are more likely to experience symptoms by virtue of the load that the knee is going through, and particularly the patellofemoral joint.
1: All right, so that that gives a good idea how to how to detect the pain, and how do you see this kind of, for example, Tai Chi, where you have kind of small circular movements within joints? And I think there's, there's at least people try to tell that it would be good for joints. Is there any, any evidence of this kind of exercises?
2: Yeah, that's, that's one of the, the exercises that has been demonstrated in clinical trials to be efficacious in the context of osteoarthritis. Uh, there's a number of different physical activities that are helpful um, in the context of osteoarthritis have been de- that have been demonstrated in trials. Tai Chi is one, uh, yoga is another, cycling is another, um, aquatic activity, w- uh, water supported is another. And g- in general, walking and maintaining general physical activity has also been shown shown to be helpful. Um, and I guess the, the key element, at least for me as a clinician, is identifying, A, what the person can continue to enjoy longer term and c- can tolerate. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, there's no point telling a person who has an aversion to water that you want them to do aquaerobics on a regular basis. Um, And likewise, for a person who's never ridden a bike in their life and has a fear and aversion to cycling, there's no point telling them to ride a bike. But, you know, find something that they can continue to enjoy that the joint can otherwise tolerate um, and encourage them to do so. And. Our, our guidance around that physical activity is very similar presumably to the guidance that you would normally give for other general health. So we're usually encouraging a person to engage in at least 150 minutes per week of moderate vigorous physical activity, uh, both from the perspective of their joint health, their weight and their general health. So quite
1: the normal recommendations of physical activity fit also for, for the joint, joint health basically.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and again, just another qualifying comment about the type of physical activity, because you did ask this before, Ollie, and I, it's not that I avoided the question, but I do think a number of people out there in the general community say that you probably want, want to avoid higher impact activities as if a person's not tolerating them. And so there, I'm particularly thinking about sports like tennis or basketball or marathon running or something of that nature, whether there's a Great degree of impact that goes through the foot and heel, uh, that is likely being transmitted proximally to the knee and and or hip, for that matter, for people that have hip osteoarthritis. Again, I you know for a person who's passionate about those sports who wants to continue to participate in them, I usually work with a physical therapist to um, find a way for them to be able to do so. And over time, uh, with appropriate coaching, tuition, and instruction, most people continue, can continue to participate in those sports that I think a lot of people otherwise discourage them from doing so. But if they can tolerate it and it's not causing exacerbations of their symptoms, I would usually encourage them to continue to remain active as long as they can.
1: Yeah, and if, if we move to move to people with osteoarthritis, it's also important for them to stay active. What are the optimal ways of... Of staying active for for them
2: yeah another great public health question ollie and something that i think is really important for people out there with osteoarthritis to understand um just again another quick promotional plug for the joint action podcast we did a wonderful episode with dan white who's a tremendous physical activity expert uh, who's been largely focused on osteoarthritis and you know a couple of the comments that i'll make really derive from dan's work and he's a Tremendous researcher based at the University of Delaware in the US. Uh, but in general, an activity that maintains a continued range of motion of the joint, continued strengthening of the muscles around the joint, and continued trophic stimulus to the joint. And so there I'm, I'm not being really restrictive about the types of physical activity. For the most part, in general, we're encouraging our older adults uh, who are otherwise unaccustomed to higher impact sports, to continue to walk. If they can't tolerate land-based activity, to consider doing that on a bike and or in the water with uh, aquatic activity. But as long as they can tolerate land-based activity, um, usually walking, um, more often than not, we also encourage people to to engage in aquatic activity uh, simply because it's so, such a good supportive exercise as well. Now. In terms of the amount of activity um, at a minimum that we would generally encourage people to do, you know, obviously there's this notion in the community that we all need to undertake 10,000 steps a day for whatever reason. Um, but at least in osteoarthritis, there's good data from the Osteoarthritis Initiative that Dan's published suggesting the minimum amount we would want someone with osteoarthritis of the knees to undertake is in the order of about 6,000 steps a day to protect them from further functional decline. So if you just want to preserve the integrity of your joint and maintain function, the minimum you would want to undertake is in the order of about 6,000 steps a day. But again, consistent with what you said before, how they get that activity, I would leave up to their discretion and their interest and their preference because If they're going to continue doing this long-term for a disease that's otherwise chronic, we need to engage them in activities that they they want to continue to participate in.
1: And, And there's a lot of interest now to look sedentary behavior and physical activity patterns throughout the day. How should the physical activity be in optimal case for people with osteoarthritis? How should it be divided within the day?
2: So those, those studies that I was talking about before that Dan did where he had accelerometers in the osteoarthritis initiative, that was just daily activity. That wasn't necessarily people going out for a walk. That was just cumulative steps per day. So it doesn't really matter how you get that activity, uh, whether that be through regular uh, daily activities, whether that be through recreation, as long as you maintain general activity uh, on a regular basis. The other qualifying comment I would make there, and it's really an extension of the sedentariness, is that the longer a person sits still, the more immobile they are, Um, and particularly if that goes for long durations through the course of the day, the more likely their joint is to to stiffen up and to lose mobility in the context of a person that has osteoarthritis. So ideally, we want people to continue to remain mobile throughout the day. Uh, We do... At the same token, we want them to engage in regular, moderate, vigorous physical activity through the course of the week. Um, but in general, we don't want them sitting for too long periods of time. And in terms of quantifying what too long a period of time is, in general, in the clinic, we encourage people to be moving every 20 to 30 minutes at least.
1: So basically, same recommendation as for sedentary behavior from a metabolic point of point of view. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and it, you know, it often, oftentimes, the metabolic syndrome is traveling hand in hand with osteoarthritis. The average body mass index of most osteoarthritis cohorts is in the order of about thirty-two.
1: And and what are the other common comorbid uh, complaints with osteoarthritis?
2: So obviously, obesity is present in about ninety percent of our population's back pain, and about sixty percent uh, diabetes, in about twenty percent. Uh, depression, anxiety, stress, and other mood disorders in about 30 to 40% of people, Um, heart disease, uh, again, in about 10%, high blood pressure in about 60%. So there's a lot of common comorbidities and consistent presumably with the messages you've had before on the podcast, there's a lot of similarities between the development of these diseases um, and the metabolic syndrome-related conditions And a lot of similarities about the way we ideally should be managing these in the in the general community longer term in terms of improving physical activity and improving diet
0: for most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time Causes unnecessary stress and hassle and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data. Introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting edge next generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.phibian.com that is s e n Fibion. created by researchers for researchers
1: So you said many comorbid complaints were at ninety percent and several at sixty so really really, really common. How how should we approach these uh, in relation to treatment or management of disease and maybe maybe kind of treating these these problems?
2: Treating the comorbid problems or treating the yeah. osteoarthritis or both? The comorbid, yeah. Yeah. So in an ideal world, we do it from a public health perspective um, and we prevent them happening in the first place. Um, and so we'd maintain good levels of physical activity through our life and have a good diet throughout our life. And we wouldn't develop uh, the metabolic syndrome or the, or the diseases that tend to travel alongside that, including osteoarthritis. But let's, let's work on the assumption that we're working with a population of people who may have um, features of the metabolic syndrome, whether that be um, obesity, changes in cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, whatever it might be. In in general, as it would be for those other diseases, we would manage them exactly the same. So uh, we would encourage them to increase their physical activity um, and modify their diet to improve uh, those features of uh, the metabolic syndrome. The mainstays, the core treatments of osteoarthritis are really four. So the first four we would advocate for is strengthening exercise, increasing physical activity, education about osteoarthritis, um, and for those people who are above a healthy weight, encouraging them to lose weight. And so I think for the most part, um, you know, the encouragement to physical activity, the encouragement about weight loss would be broadly consistent between osteoarthritis and the metabolic syndrome. And ideally, we shouldn't be treating these in isolation. And for... Many of the modern clinics, the multidisciplinary clinics, um, including the one that I have the good fortune to work in, where we work alongside physiotherapists, uh, exercise physiologists, dietitians, uh, that's what we are trying to achieve.
1: And, and you said one, one point was education. What are the most common misconceptions among people with osteoarthritis related to, to that condition?
2: So, I mean, some of, the, some of the important myths here, Ollie, is one, you know, really important myth that we've touched upon already is that uh, the joint uh, doesn't do well with activity. And so I think for a lot of people out there in the community uh, who have joint-related symptoms, they prefer to be sedentary. Um, and it's really important we distill that myth and encourage people to be physically active and get them off the couch and stop them being sedentary because that's one of the worst things that they can do for their joint health long term. As mentioned before, a lot of people believe that their joint only has a certain number of steps that they can take in their life before they develop osteoarthritis. And again, that's a misconception that's completely inaccurate. Another common misconception is that a person will, you know, um, that the joint health in the context of osteoarthritis is one of continued deterioration and that the prognosis is poor and that they're going to end up either in a wheelchair or with a joint replacement. And again, that's really inaccurate. The natural history of osteoarthritis is only about 10% of people require joint replacement uh, with osteoarthritis of the knee and hip. So it's the vast majority of people never need joint surgery. And that you know, I don't know people that end up in a wheelchair as a consequence of their osteoarthritis uh, because otherwise they've, you know, for that to have happened, they've otherwise been mismanaged. So for education, it's really about, more often than not, reassurance um, encouragement uh, keeping them focused on uh, those common core treatments that i spoke about before around exercise physical activity and maintaining a healthy weight um, and encouraging them that the prognosis is good and being positive and reinforcing them to uh, to pursue those core treatments
1: yeah really really good points and i think listeners if they are interested on in the theme, they can they can go to check your joint health podcast you have a lot of episode with good experts there and if we talk a little bit about your podcast so you are a researcher a clinician and have a have a specific own podcast how how ha- has it been doing the podcast
2: <laughs> i've learned a lot and i still have a lot to learn ollie um I'm, I'm not obviously a journalist by trade i'm not a communicator by my broad range of expertise um, but it's something that we we set about during COVID to because we were doing a lot of community education events, uh, particularly for people that have osteoarthritis to increase their knowledge about the disease and how they can best manage that. Uh, but as a consequence of COVID, we weren't able to have large community events, and so our, our consumers encouraged us to continue the education in some way, shape, or form. So we we started this uh, this podcast. Um. At, at this point in time, it's largely targeted towards people that have osteoarthritis, but because of the the tone and flavor of uh, probably my conversation, but also of the guests that I've had along, more often than not, it's probably quite appropriate for health professionals and researchers in the space. And I, I think there's a lot of listeners that we have come from either of those backgrounds. Um the general ilk is that we bring along a guest to talk about a particular theme that's hopefully of relevance and importance to people that have osteoarthritis. Um, and, and we've been doing this now for um, about a uh, little over two years. Um, and the, the listener base appears to be increasing. I don't know where they come from. Um, it's always very hard to know, um, but it's something I've I've enjoyed. Um, and I think particularly during COVID, a great way to communicate uh, for people out there trying to learn more about osteoarthritis, but also for me, communicating with friends and colleagues that I otherwise didn't have a chance to meet face-to-face during COVID, conferences were cancelled. And so it's you know a good time for me to catch up with them, to get to know them a little bit better, uh, with the excuse that I was doing a podcast um, for, for, that, for that particular purpose. So it's, it's something I've enjoyed. Um, and it's something I hope to be able to continue to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I agree with many of the points you mentioned, and and what do you see as as challenges? There's probably some researcher listening to this, and and maybe thinking of the idea, but not doing. Could you could you tell what were the challenges for you, and how did you overcome them?
2: Um, it's. Like anything, I think it's a craft that you have to learn. And to me, it's been an experiential learning process. And, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there on the internet about how to do a good podcast and how to do a good interview. And what are the essential ingredients that you should be aiming for in terms of, you know, asking, having a great topic, what's the balance between that and having a good, eloquent guest? Um, How do you best engage listeners and to try to do that in a conversational way so that it sounds like it's a it's a natural conversation and to not make it such that it just sounds like a barrage of questions one after the other without necessarily any break or or interruption and inflow between the questions so i'm i'm learning as i go Um, i don't profess to be an expert Um, it's a craft that i think will take years and years to become or to develop some level of expertise. And I, th- I think, you know, at least if I understand the way podcasts operate as a business, excuse me, I think for most people who are out there who are doing podcasts, it takes years for them to develop their listener base. Um, and so f- I think for a lot of people that come in, they say, well, I'm going to do uh, five to 10 episodes if I don't have thousands of listeners each each episode by the end of those five to ten i'm going to quit um i I don't know what your experience is but i think it takes a lot longer than that Um, and i think particularly from the perspective of learning the craft it takes a hell of a lot longer than five to ten episodes
1: Mm, i i fully agree that it's it's a thing that you need to learn and I think the best way is to start learning by actually start doing it. It's it doesn't really make sense like just practicing many years the skills of interview and it's it's the it's better to just do and like you said, the listener base it takes time and I think we have been doing this two and a half years now, a little bit over. And yeah, it's it's slowly slowly, slowly going up. And yeah, about learning. Yeah, it's it's just you start doing the first ones and you learn, you, you publish them, maybe somebody listens, maybe. And, and I, I think any way people find values, I don't know how many podcasts there are about joint health, but probably not many. So even if it's not perfect, it's still very valuable for people. So I, I would really, really think the same, that it's just good to good to start
2: yeah yeah and you know, I think it's going to become an increasing means of communicating with uh, the general audience and the community of people with health problems um, as as uh, community events became less and less frequent, I think this is be- going to become more and more frequent
1: and and you selected for uh, the name for the podcast Joint Health, which is quite easy for for normal people to understand what is it about and you aimed for for people with osteoarthritis or normal people but also think that it's it's good for professionals how do you how do you see it now when you do interviews do you think that you try to give it something for professionals and something for normal people or how do you how do you think about it when doing a recording or preparing for one
2: yeah so ollie it's called the joint action podcast and the um the general flavor, and this is what this is what I say for the the listeners as well as to the guests, that I, I try to ensure that they use lay language um, and that it can be targeted towards a general community audience. For for the most part, my guests do a pretty good job. And you know, I stumble on a regular basis and use words that scientifically are probably completely unappealing to the general community but i try as best i can to continue to focus on a level of communication that would be suitable for someone in the general community i think the reason why uh, health professionals and researchers have garnered interest in the podcast is because you know the guests i get along are really the cream of the field they're the best people in in osteoarthritis from around the world on the particular topics that we're choosing to talk about And I've been fortunate in in at least thus far, no one has said no. You know, I I approach all kinds of different people, some of whom I don't particularly know well. And more often than not, they're really willing to share their uh, expertise, their story, um, and to do it in a way that I think is appealing both for a general audience, but also because of their expertise Uh, to a more scientifically inclined audience as well
1: Mm, yeah sorry for saying the name of your podcast wrong it's (laughs) all it's all good
2: it's all good because we have we have another community called joint effort um, another one called joint action and at least on my twitter handle i definitely say joint health so it's uh yeah it's all about joints
1: but I think this is also the practicalities of podcast. I have two screens. I'm I'm looking there, and then I have another screen. But I have scrolled down already, and the name wasn't there. So, <laughs> yeah. So practicalities. It's all good. Yeah. So so about what would you be your tips and maybe encouragement for other researchers or clinicians that they would actually take the step and start the podcast.
2: I think, as you were saying before, Ollie, you know, if if you have a particular interest in that space, just go out and start doing it. Um, It's a craft that you can only learn through practice. And I think we, as as a research community, don't do a very good job of telling the story about what we do in general. I mean, I think some people do a great job. Um, But I think as a community of researchers, historically, we used to think our job consisted of, you know, getting a grant, doing the study, writing the paper and publishing it. But you know, I think critically, research agencies, funding agencies and universities as a whole are thinking a lot more about impact. Uh, and you can't, to my way of thinking, do a good job of disseminating your research unless you start communicating about it. And the, the beauty of podcasts for the general community is that they're free. They're accessible on most platforms uh, that people want to listen to them on. Um, and it's a great way for people to tell their story, um, and so I would just, you know, encourage people to get started, uh, look at it as a, as a responsibility, whether that be about telling the story about your research or communicating to the to the health community you want to reach. Um, I just think it's an important responsibility.
1: Yeah, and and before we finish, is there anything you want to promote? Any resources? Any any books? Any any open positions?
2: Yeah, thanks, Ollie. It's, um, the, the main one that I'd really like to actively promote is the Joint Action Podcast. There's a, a great number of episodes there that I'm sure are likely to be of appeal to your audience as well. For people who are out there who have uh, osteoarthritis, the other group that I help to lead is called the Joint Effort Consortium, and this is a group of uh, multidisciplinary clinics around the world that are promoting optimal management for osteoarthritis. Um, we promote that through the Osteoarthritis Research Society website. Um and it's a, just a great community for us to share knowledge, to share expertise, and we're developing uh, core training manuals for health professionals working in that space uh, around how best to manage osteoarthritis uh, that we're sharing through that joint effort community. So that they would be the two things that I'd I'd like to actively promote. Not actively recruiting for anybody at the moment, but for any P- prospective PhD students or postdocs who are out there who have um, a strong desire to spend some time down in Australia doing research in osteoarthritis, uh, please send me an email.
1: And and maybe, maybe a question also for early career researchers and PhD, people looking for a PhD position. What do you look for a PhD student? What kind of person is an ideal PhD student or a postdoc for, for you?
2: Well, it's for a PhD student, someone who's enthusiastic, who's clear about what it is that they want to try to achieve. And so that, you know, they have some clearly stated objectives and ideally that they write well and that they communicate well. For a clinical researcher taking on PhD students, the biggest problem that I see in PhD students is that they don't write or communicate well. And it's a big, big barrier to their success. Um, for a postdoc, postdocs that I've normally uh, brought into my group have largely been people that I've met through meetings that I've been really impressed with the work that they're doing and that I'm really enthusiastic about continuing to mentor and guide and and to shape um, and to give them greater success. So it's usually people that I've met, um, and this is probably going to sound a little bit strange, but they also have to be someone that you're willing to go to the pub with and have a drink with um if you if you don't get along with them it's going to be a tough gig to work with them so it's really important that they be a good person that you have some alignment in terms of interests um and, and that you can get along with them
1: yeah good good points and as the last question what would be your career advice for for researchers you have you have quite a long career And and successful career. What what do you think are the the main points to take care in in the career?
2: Stay true to your goals would be the probably the single most important thing. I think it's really easy to lose sight of what's important, um, and to get distracted by the publication race or to get distracted by the next next grant that's coming along. But really focus on what it is that you want to achieve what it is that you want to make a difference to and stay true to that because it's really, really easy to get lost in the race uh, and to lose focus of what's truly important. And at least for me, that's making an impact for people out there who have osteoarthritis and hopefully improving knowledge and care and treatment for people so that that way it becomes less disabling long-term.
1: Great, great advice to end this podcast episode. Thank you, David, for taking time.
2: An absolute pleasure, Ollie. Thanks so much for having me along.
1: Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.